welcome to Knock On Podcast, where we bring you archery information and education that you can trust. Knock On was created as a way to bring all archers together, regardless of the brand you choose or the style of archery you shoot. Knock On Podcasting will deliver professional insights to the latest gear, proper shooting technique, along with high-level equipment setup and tuning. Hey everybody, welcome back to another Knock On Podcast, and definitely going to have a great show for you here. I've got my really good buddy, Chris Wall, from down in Georgia on the phone. Chris, say hi. Hello, everyone. Well, Chris will be on his cell phone, so if his audio sounds like turd, that's his fault. So I've got a new microphone, so hopefully mine sounds like bliss. Thanks, Chris, for sending me a bottle of wine, by the way. Yeah, no worries. You uh done some good things for me and trying to make a good presence down here in Georgia for all the knock on nation and see if we can get some followers down here. So I thought I would send you a little care package and uh that way it might prompt you to do another podcast. <laughs> yeah, I'm so easily bribed. Um just so everyone knows, Chris is a Chris is a uh you know, a dedicated bow hunter and just really loves archery, super passionate, um, takes, puts in a lot of time with the Georgia bow hunting community down there and, uh, runs a great forum and he's just, uh, him and I always have some great conversations regarding hunting or miscellaneous archery and he's, it never fails. He's got plenty of dry humor to go along and he's probably going to roast me here and there so i figured some people would enjoy that part of it too so i think it'll be a good show with the two of us have you been out (laughs) have you been out hunting yet yeah i've uh our season opened back on the 12th of september so i've got a good many days in the tree on the weekends mostly just uh due to family things but uh I uh, shot a couple of does opening weekend, had a nice double, and uh, had a couple of run-ins with uh, some nice bucks down here. I've got a few that I'm chasing around, but uh, just haven't we haven't had good weather the last couple of weekends, and now we've got a lot of rain, so just trying to make through that, but it's, we still got a long season ahead of us. Oh, yeah. Well, I'm a big advocate of, I love hunting on rainy days. Uh, I think I just put that in a recent article, you know, as... Make sure you don't stay in during the the rainy days because I've I've found that that animals, especially when it's hot, uh, they like to move during those times. And I've had really good luck on nasty nasty days. So I always kind of look at it as as an opportunity to get out there when most people aren't gonna go out there and deal with that. So I tend to have more privacy and I still have good activity. So. I like to encourage people to go out during those times instead of wussing out like you sound like you're doing right now. Yeah, this is it's a good excuse for me to spend time with my with my wife, you know, probably oh. like a lot of guys. Okay, <laughs> see, here we go. Here we go. Guilt trip already. <laughs> yeah. Um but it Yeah, but you are right. I I I I remember a couple of your shows you saw shot some nice deer during the rain or I know if you can catch them in between some rain, you know, in between a couple of showers here and there, they're always moving. And and I know during uh, just from running trail cameras that I do have good activity when it's raining. But I mean, the deer, you know, they're not they're not sitting under an umbrella somewhere. That's for sure. Yep. Yep. Exactly. 
Well, let's um let's we're gonna jump into a whole bunch of questions and answers here today. And I know that you um, run a great forum down there. Do you want to maybe talk about your forum, and then do you have any um, do you have any types of questions off the top of your head that you kind of want to throw out there before we get into some of these that we have that we have online? Um, yeah, I can talk about the forum. Um, what what we have down here is is a is a magazine based forum. It's the Georgia Outdoor News. Um, which is a, is a, you know, a lot of people. There's not a lot of print still going around, but it's a, it's a widely read magazine that we have. It's um, you can read online, or I mean, I don't know what the actual subscription count is, but it's pretty high. And then our actual forum that we have has a lot of has a lot of members. I, I want to say it has between eight and ten thousand that are actually active. I know that we have somewhere close to a hundred thousand that are signed up, but. Who knows how many of those are aliases or third names or whatever it may be, but the forum has a has a lot of good bow hunting only topics on it, and then we also established a, a do it yourself to, uh, topic last year that that I kind of oversee that because I'm kind of like you, I have a knack for tuning, and I help a lot of guys through there, and I get a lot of messages through the forum pretty much every day about different topics kind of like what you do on the podcast not nearly the not nearly the scale but you know ranging from cam lean to spine on arrows and release aids and i mean pretty much everything so it's cool for me to get to interact with just the guys down here and 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 that's led me to meet some great guys to hunt with and and, and just like our community does the archery community is it's made me a lot of good friends and um, I've really enjoyed that part of that. It's just to, to help others, and, and it's really cool. But so I think the forum address is it's forum.gon.com, and I'd invite everybody to check it out if they want, and we can hook up on there. Yeah, for sure. I know that you and I have talked about several topics that have kind of came up in there, and um, and also from what you and I have talked about, you try to keep a lot of the bs out of there too and that's really good to have the right mediators and the you know right people overseeing those forums so that people don't have to keep getting drugged down rat holes and they can go in there and really have a community where they're getting getting good information and also being able to just stay on track um with keeping the conversations kind of on the subject that they're supposed to be about too so i think people really appreciate what you're doing down there yeah, it seems to be it seems to be pretty successful so far, and, and you know, probably like you, I get a lot of I get a lot of reward out of that. That's always nice to help guys, and you know, not take for granted that everyone's been shooting a bow since they were five, or they had someone helping them, or or like me, I, I worked in a shop with some really top name shooters that really helped me that that I learned a lot from. So not everyone has the same resources, but it's nice to have online resources today. But it is. It is difficult sometimes to weed through what's right and what's wrong, and 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 keeping it keeping it you know clean. Yep, yep, I agree. Well, okay, let's. Uh, we've got questions on both the Knock On TV page, but I've also got a lot of questions here on the Instagram account. So I'm just going to start uh, shuffling through these. Um, there's some some that I might not dive into just because they're fairly complex i might do those at a different time 
but uh, let's just start out here um, with uh, TJ Rattler from Instagram. I'm going to start out with his, one of the last ones, and it kind of pops out to me. How long before, um, let's see here, I don't know how, sometimes if it's someone just kind of typing quick, you don't really get to understand what they're saying. I think he's asking how long is my breakthrough on cables and string materials and how far out is is it really out well you know strings and cables i've talked about this several times and it's something that i need to talk about probably every episode because i've always been amazed at even bow companies that you know there's some companies that make some unbelievable bows people pay a big price tag for them um, but then you look at the strings and cables and they're just you know it's probably the cheapest thing on the bow and that's what's always uh, been mind-blowing to me is your strings and cables are probably the most important thing that you put on your bow because if they change everything else instantly changes draw length poundage um, you know timing synchronization the list goes on and on so you have to have something that you know, is going to stay the same all the time. And um, I personally replace all my strings and cables with winner's choice. And I can tell you that normally by the time I've shot my bow through paper, my string and cable settling is done. And if you pick the right materials, which, you know, the stock strings and cables from there are going to have the right materials in there, whether you choose, you know, some people like different types of materials depending on the feel they want, but um, whether it's a, a BCY X or a 452X or an 8125, there's a lot of different materials that are really great material right now. I'm a BCY fan for any type of string material or, or uh, you know, threads for tying in peeps or servings. But um, another thing you can do too is when you get a bow and you're about to take it through that break-in period, um, I often like to just kind of set my bow outside if it's, you know, especially if there's some heat, just set it outside and let it warm up. Um, you could put it in a car, you know, if it's outside, but don't do it, don't do it so long where you bake the thing to death. The main thing is if you put it out in the heat and you let it heat up enough to where you can see that wax starting to kind of melt out of the fibers where they're twisted, that um, really takes a lot of the time out of the settling period because then you can just kind of take a piece of leather and just rub rub that, that wax that's coming out of that material. You can kind of rub it down and some of that excess wax will come off and really people that um that have a brand new set of strings and cables they might wrap them themselves and they never get into any type of heat at all that wax takes a long time to kind of squish out of the way and let all those fibers settle so a lot of your settling is just wax settling more so than actual material settling so i like to get a lot of that wax out um, right off the bat and then from there, you know, it's just a simple matter of twisting down your strings or cables to get your cams where you want them to be, get everything in time, and get your peep rotation correct. 
And then I really like to mark my cams using my limb as a reference so that you can know if there's any ever you know if ever, anything's ever moved you it's just easy to look down if you see that little pencil mark that you had used your limb as a reference with if it's completely spun out of the way then you know you need to to check what's going on for sure what uh what do you normally do chris down with some of your stuff you're down in the hot box down there down in georgia right now you wouldn't want to leave your bow in your car very long i can tell you that but it would work no 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 it wouldn't but that is a good i've never really thought about that but i i kind of agree with what you said normally and and i install a lot of strings and cables every year so i get to go through that for other guys bows which i, I enjoy seeing different different you know different string makers and that type of thing i get a lot of guys stuff in here but Typically, what I like to do is, you know, before I even really get into tuning is to shoot it in a little bit. And like you said, normally with today's materials, I mean, within 20 shots, I feel like it's pretty pretty shot in. And there's not going to be a lot of movement with the cams again. But I normally keep just my own setup, you know, a, a little you know, a paper tuner set up throughout the season just to, just to shoot an arrow here and there through the, through the paper, really not to really change my tune but just to make sure that nothing's gotten out of whack that you know your loop hasn't moved or or nothing crazy's happened so i like to just kind of keep it you know I, I like to shoot a bear shaft through paper which is probably overkill but it allows me to see the tear a little easier a lot of times and uh and just check that and and one thing too that that i see in a lot of guys that you know when they buy a new bow like you said and they you know obviously there's varying feels at some pro shops and some places you may buy a bow and they hand it to you and just you know install your accessories and you're on your way is you know there are different types of cam systems that you know are have different loads on the cables and you may want to talk about that i don't know if you've talked about that before but you know I, i'm obviously partial to hoist and i know you are and that's what i shoot my whole table is hoist and and i know you know there's a lot of load on the bus cable as composed as a you know, compared to the control cable. So a lot of times when you see a Hoyt come out of the box and, and the cams, if they're out of sync, it's because that bus cable has stretched a little more than the control cable, and, and that obviously will change the cam sync. So normally if I get a new bow like that, that's the first thing I check for is just to see what's happened with the cables uh, in the, as opposed to each other and get that back right. You need to make sure your cams are in sync or, you know, they're timed properly before you dive into really major tuning oh yeah yeah back in um back when i worked at matthews and we came out with a a bow called the black max i'm sure you remember it um we had a lot of calls from dealers out on the west coast that were saying when we get these bows they're not getting the speeds that they're supposed to and you know with with that original single cam it was critical that that cam was actually put in the correct position. You know, the cam rotation had to be right even on a single cam. And, you know, people are telling us the cam rotations aren't even close. And, you know, it's we know that they're leaving the factory correct. So we actually had some people taking some pictures of how the bows were showing up there at the shop. And it was completely different from how they were when they were here. So we actually did a test and we put some bows in a box and, and actually for that bow, see, we, we, 
we built that bow with two strands less in the string and cable so that it would have more speed that's kind of the one of the tricks and stuff that bow companies uh-huh. do to try to outmarket you but uh what we did was we marked that cam sent that bow down to arizona and then had them immediately put a ups tag on it and send it back to us and it was unreal how much the the cam had moved just from being in the heat of the ups truck and being in that box so yeah when you buy a brand new bow depending on the time of year you know i can guarantee you when it's leaving the hoyt factory it's set up perfectly a lot of times um well if i have a bow that's like next day aired to me from hoyt you know especially if it's you know during this time of the year where it's not as hot i pull it out of the box things practically you know ready to go but there's times where if it ships ground, it's in the middle of the summer, it sits on my door for the whole day. Yeah, when I pull it out of the box, I can even see some of that sweat on the outside of the string. And and I know that, uh, you know, I'm going to have to make a little bit of adjustment. But for all you out there listening that maybe don't do your own bow work, uh, you know, this is just kind of everyday things for shops they need to be able to look at that and know that 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 happens but with any bow regardless you know you want your cam synchronization to be perfect whether you're shooting a hybrid cam a single cam or a cam and a half system or a two cam bow all of them have proper cam orientation and you know even if you don't have to time one cam against the other i can guarantee you there is a position that gives you the best performance and and usually your archery shop's going to know that um another thing i guess i want to plug while we're on this subject is um for those of you who didn't listen to the last podcast i have published all the knocked and ready to rock video segments for free which is a start to finish bow build from last year's season five of the knock on tv show and you can find uh the knocked and ready to rock segments on the knock on archery youtube page um you can subscribe for free and you can watch them as many times as you want it shows you how to do your own strings and cables how to mark the cam everything um, you can also go to knockontv.com and look at the videos there. Um, they're all broken down as well, but just make sure that when you do that, um, I still would like everyone to be able to subscribe to that YouTube channel because there's a lot of videos that I'm going to be posting here over these next over the next year that I probably won't go public with unless you have subscribed to that page. Um, have you watched any of those segments yet, Chris? Yeah, I've seen I've seen them all. I, I watch the show, you know, every week, and 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 that whole segment is, is very good. And and I thought you, you obviously did an excellent job. You didn't you didn't you know talk probably near to the to your expertise level, but you you really made it clear and covered all the bases for anyone that really wants to jump, just jump in ground level and start learning because. Yeah, I mean, there is a lot to learn, but it's not overwhelming. You know, a lot of a lot of guys say, "Hey, how did you learn all that stuff?" And I and I tell them, I'm like, I just I just did it, and and it's just hands on. And then having someone that you can bounce ideas off of is very helpful. 
and and the segment. I mean, it was great. If anyone wants to really just jump in and learn how to, you know, I mean, I I really feel like most hardcore archers probably know how to tie a D loop, but you know, it, for the average bow hunter, if they have something happen to their D loop, I mean, it's not difficult to learn and having that type of video to reference is, is really, really helpful. Yeah, and, you know, it's funny. Whenever I want subjects on what I should be writing about or, you know, a subject for even a new podcast, if I go on a hunt and I see other people there, it's like guaranteed uh, subject matter because yeah. it's just unfortunate to me how many times I see, you know, average passionate you know dedicated bow hunters just making just mistakes that i would i I mean personally it's just like man that's why why wouldn't they know that that's not gonna be in their benefit um it just continually happens and you know learning even if you learn to tie your own d loop you know not knowing to cinch it down to where it you know it slides up and down the string if if you try to move it you know just simple small little things like that i had a guy in camp that put his own loop on his bow and um when i looked at it i'm like well it's you know you don't have any tied knocks on there so if that thing ever did move you're not going to really know where to put it back to and he just you know kind of said i don't think it's going to move well sure enough after you know grabbing your bowstring and carrying it up and down the mountain a couple times you know next thing you know is he had missed an animal and then when he went out to the range he couldn't even hit the target and then i look and i'm like uh well your d loops like probably a half inch high and you know it's it's exactly what had happened you know it it could just slide up and down so it is important for you to at least know how to do it the correct way so you're not no one out there's making some simple mistakes with that um i'm going to move into the next question here um I got RJ Clockmaker. I assume he's, well, I guess I don't know where he's from, but he's talking about a podcast that I've done in the past with Clint Freeman when we talked about launcher blade thicknesses and different uh, angles and how we run that. And he's saying, um, his question is, um, if the if the, the springy support of the blade gives forgiveness, but yet you contrast that with how a fallaway um, rest works where it is very stiff and it supports it very little um, how are both of them still working well is it more about how the fletch passes through um, and then he says uh, you'd also been talking about playing around with a blade on a follow on a followaway how did that work out so yeah there's when it comes to how arrow rests support an arrow there's there's like two really opposing types of um, styles, and both of them work considerably well. Uh, one would be a fallaway rest, which is what I shoot on my hunting bow. Um, you know that supports that supports the arrow for a portion of time, and then it gets out of the way and lets the lets the arrow clear. Then there's a launcher blade style rest, which is a fixed blade. It almost, you know, looks like we call them lizard tongues. It's a piece of spring steel, and that's what a lot of target archers use. And it's just a fixed rest. It has a little bit of bendiness, a little bit of forgiveness, but um, it 
doesn't fall completely out of the way. So really what's critical when it comes to an arrow rest is that the arrow rest one does the same thing every time. I remember um I remember I had a bow one time that for whatever reason it was just really not working out for me for like tuning and stuff. Um and I was trying to mess around with at the time I shot a bow doodle rest. You remember those? They still have them actually. Um and I was playing around with like the tension and I just found that it seemed like it was just continually giving me a low tear and it made me think that that was just that the the direction of the arrow was pushing that out of the way too easily so i actually um took a screw and put a screw right up through the bottom of the rest and screwed it into that little part that hinged to where it was completely like locked down because i know that that bow shot really good when i had and it was a it was an LX is what the bow was because I remember I shot a launcher blade on it um, for indoor and it shot really good. And then when I went to try to shoot a hunting arrow and put a, you know, a bow doodle rest on there, it was not doing good at all. So I thought, well, I'm just going to lock this rest down just so it's the same as my launcher and see how it works. And that bow doodle rest completely locked down. I mean, it was like shooting off a solid piece of metal it shot unbelievable it had perfect arrow flight the arrow did the same all the time um, but what was critical about it was that i had good clearance you know i was able to to make sure that i had all my knocks turned correctly so my veins were passing perfectly through there and i had great arrow flight so you know that whole system there is completely opposite of anything that we're doing now but it did work at the time Right now, I'm using, um, you know, a trophy taker rest, and I really like the the limb-driven type systems where the rest is down while you're at full draw, and as you draw back, it comes up, you know, once you take the pressure off that piece of cord, and then the limbs, when you fire, the limbs pull that rest out of the way the same every time. Um, what I think is great about it is, for me, especially right now, I'm shooting a four fletch on my hunting arrows. So there's just no way if I shot a fixed, like a like a launcher blade style rest or something, there's just no way I would get adequate clearance. And the fall away allows you to shoot either a very small shaft, like if you're shooting a... Um, Say you're shooting a, an Easton injection arrow or a VAP. Um, it allows you to shoot that small shaft with multiple fletches if you want. And that rest is completely getting out of the way so that you have clearance. Um, now that that arrow and, and vein configuration would not really work well on a launcher style because you're going you're gonna to have trouble with the contact. The main thing that makes both those systems work is just that they're doing the same thing every time and that they're supporting the arrow for the same amount of time. If you do shoot a launcher blade and you don't have the right thickness, like if it's too weak, then what you'll find is that you start to have a lot of inconsistencies in your grouping and that's because that blade is doing something different all the time. 
the key on the launcher blades is you want them to be stiff enough to where they support the arrow and they're repeatable but you also want them to have just enough forgiveness to where if a vein or anything does happen to contact that lizard tongue it's forgiving enough to slightly bend so that it doesn't affect your arrow shaft too much so that's really the 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 two different angles on both those rests and why they why one works and why the other one works as well uh do you have anything to throw in on that chris uh, no, not really. You pretty much covered it, all of it. The only thing that I that I would add in here is as far as like like you mentioned, you're shooting a trophy taker. One thing that I like about the limb driven rest from a hunting standpoint, which most of the guys I deal with are hunters, is that you know you can adjust some of the um, the time that those that a drop away does support the arrow just by moving that cord around on the limb. Um, and that's, and that is important, especially, you know, when, when you're looking at different cam systems and, and Hoyt obviously are hybrid cams and, and, and which work kind of similar to a single cam in that they do have a little bit of downward knock movement, you know, when the string is released. And a lot of times when I have a drop away, if it drops too fast, I can't, I can't get as good a tune out of the bow. And so it's. A lot of times, you know, by moving that cord around on the limb to, to have the rest support the arrow just a little longer sometimes, it, it, will, it can help your tune or it can, it can help whatever that arrow is really wanting from the bow. Um, so I, I like that aspect from the limb-driven dri- limb rest either. And, I, and there's some good dropaways out there that don't have that, but, um, but a lot of them do when you have that cord running off the limb. You, can, you have a little more tunability with those types of rests, which I like. Yep. Yep. I agree. I like, I really like to try to keep your, your rest to support the arrow about halfway down it if you can. Um, and for me, the limb driven systems took a lot of the guesswork out of when your blade needs to come up and down. They seem a lot, a lot more consistent. Um, when I tied on the original fallaway style rest where you tie them into the cable they're so fixed you know it's really hard to get that length exactly perfect where it comes up at the right time or falls down at the right time Um, once i went to a a limb driven system it seemed like it was a lot easier to to get everything to work out Um, you know people that shoot i guess he asked about you know incorporating a launcher blade on a fallaway. There's certainly people doing it, and I've done it. Uh, what gets hard is you know you kind of have to set up that rest to where if that when that blade comes down, it's not hitting anything because otherwise you start bending your lizard tongue when it comes down. So it almost has to be free floating flat when it comes down. It can't hit anything, so it doesn't end up bending the blade. But um, some people that still shot the the cord tied into their cables uh, a lot of the european archers they would actually kind of tie a little spring in the middle of that that cord that went to their cables that way that spring had some give and it slowed down uh, the speed of that fall away rest a little bit and gave them a little bit better arrow flight but i would say for the most part a lot of the a lot of the rest today are doing a really good job of making tuning much easier than than five years ago for sure 
Um, yeah. I've got another question here um, from a guy. He's saying he'd like to hear about the different kinds of archery and what really is the difference between like feet of archery um, and field archery. So um, really the, the main formats of archery is you'll have indoor archery, um, which has several, several different types of rounds. You'll have a Vegas round, which is a three-spot face. Um, they have an inner X and then a 10. Um, for Vegas, they score uh, the 10, and then they use your X count kind of as, as a tiebreaker. Um, whereas for FIDA, they would use that same target face, except the X is actually the 10. Um, and then, you know, that everything outside of that is obviously a lower number. Um, so the FIDA scores, if you're looking at a FIDA indoor score, you know, most of the time they're going to shoot a 600 round. So in order to shoot a perfect 600, you're going to have to have 60 X's shot. Um, the other thing too is FIDA normally has a uh, poundage limitation. So, you know, you're able to shoot a maximum poundage of 60 pounds. Um, and you also have a diameter maximum too. You can't shoot an arrow bigger than a 23. A 2315 is the biggest arrow that you can shoot for FIDA. So, you know, last year when the perfect 600 was shot, you know, that's. 60x's shot with a 23 diameter arrow not a big 27 which is what some people can shoot for the nfaa stuff uh, field archery you really have two different types uh, you've got feed a field which is going to be black spots with yellow dots um, their format is a little bit different where you have um, a marked round and an unmarked round um, so one, one full round or one day is going to be at, at unmarked distances and one day is going to be at marked distances. And, you know, you pretty much, uh, nowadays they use the X, they score the X. Back when I shot, the X was more of, you know, tiebreaker for the X count. Um, but again, they have black and yellow faces and it's anywhere from, you know, roughly 10 meters to 60 meters for the FIDA field. Now the NFA field, you know, you have uh, different rounds for that, marked and unmarked, and then also an animal round. Um, you shoot a little bit longer distances in that, and the other difference too is, you know, for FIDA field, you'll shoot uh, three arrows per target, whereas for NFA, you're going to shoot five. Um, then if you look at outdoor target archery um, you know there's a lot of different rounds usually they're going to be shot at either 30 50 70 or 90 meters um, all these formats are are really really fun they're different style of formats and sometimes I know for me just going to archery tournaments and being able to learn the rules and what to do and what not to do on some of these shoots those were that was always some part of the fun was really not knowing what the rounds were and going there and I remember my first uh, Arizona cup that I went to I pretty much went there with two 3d bows and let everyone explain the rules to me as I went along I didn't really know what to do by the 
by the last day, I kind of knew what I was supposed to do, but uh, it was a, it was a fun learning curve because for me it was doing something different. Sometimes if you get stuck in the rut of feeling like you're doing the same thing for practice every single day, it's nice just to grab a different kind of target face and shoot at some different types of distances as well or even learn to use you know a different poundage on your bow or have to use a different type of arrow shaft so that's uh kind of the differences in a nutshell there buddy so hopefully you get out and and try some of that um let's see next question here i've got is i would love to hear if you ended up using your felt bike on your montana hunt if so how did it turn out um okay so i i took my felt bike to hunt in montana actually but i took two things i took my my yamaha grizzly um because i knew in one spot that was going to be further back in i knew that i could have a motorized vehicle um but i also took my bike i was wanting to use my bike i really wanted to do a hunt off my bike and there was one area that was actually perfect for it and i also wanted to use my bike mainly for my antelope hunting because a lot of the farmers out there um in the you know western part of south dakota or eastern part of montana they don't allow you to to take vehicles like with catalytic converters out in those fields because they don't want to start any fires so sometimes you know if you go to your antelope stand you might have to you might have to to find a good secluded water hole or something like that you might have to go a few miles um so i was really looking forward to being able to go out there with my bike and and kind of pack everything out but i pretty much got there and took my bike off the rack and then remembered how much cactus there is where i was and i hadn't slimed any of my tires so i kind of thought well i'm not going to do that um there's a ton of cactus in this particular area where I antelope hunt, uh, and deer hunt. So I ended up not using my bike because I ha- I hadn't, uh, slimed up my tires. Now I had slimed up my four wheeler. So I ended up using that, uh, for most of that hunt, but I am going to use my, my felt bike for, for whitetails here. And, uh, I also have a, a hog hunt planned uh, this winter that I'm definitely going to use it for as well. I think it's it's awesome. And one thing I guess I do want to say about my bike too, and Chris, you're a big bike rider as well. Um, mm-hmm. This year, in the past, when I you know I I try to stay in shape all, all year long, you know that, but um, and I typically do quite a fair bit of um, running. And I normally kind of turn the notch up on that in the summertime to really get ready for, you know, this these months of the year, the end of August and September. I'm pretty hard on my body um, for different hunts and packing out stuff and having to climb hills and everything. And normally I do a lot of running and kind of do some, like, sprinting in my practice to get ready for that. Um, and I've always got by. But this year, because of my shoulder and stuff, I've done so much more riding because I really couldn't swing my arms for a long time. So I started riding and then, um, you know, I ended up getting that new felt outfitter and 
that's made riding even more enjoyable because you know if there's ever any like major big hills i can turn that electronic assist on and i can it's almost like i can spot myself you know a lot of people ask me if i just ride around all the time with the with the electronic assist on and no i don't um now if i'm going to a stand or if i'm using it for hunting practice i will use the electronic assist all the time because the key there is I really want to get to my stand without like breaking out in a sweat. You know, I want to be able to, to just barely put any, any effort in and get to where I'm going. Um, but when I'm using it for a form of exercise, I use that electronic assist, just like you would use a spotter in the gym. Uh, as I'm pedaling, if I get tired or if I'm like really starting to burn myself out or if I've got a mega big hill that I'm worried about not making it over, I'll just kind of give myself a little spot and then get over that. Um, but what I will say is this year, I would say 80% of my fitness uh, to get me in shape for my Western hunting was all done on my bike. And I can tell you, man, what a difference my legs are, I mean, my legs look like frog legs right now. I've got, I've got way more definition and strength in my quads, um, than I've had in the past. And I mean, I just powered through, I left people in the dust this year. I mean, I've got some great friends that live in BC that, that, uh, I mean, you met Dusty, you know, Dusty can get around and, and Jeremy as well too. Um, and then several of the people that I hunt with in Montana, those guys can, can run those hills like no other, but this year I just kind of left people in the dust. I mean, I just felt like I could just go and go and go and go. And when I was climbing hills in the past, like my, you know, your calves get to the, where they feel like they're just burning rocks in the back of your legs. If you're ever, you know, climbing hill and like hill boots, but I didn't have any of that this year. And I, I'm giving credit to how much riding I did. I mean, I it just I think the difference in learning to power through on the pedals really transfers right into having to power up hills or have a bunch of weight on your back and and have to, you know, climb up stuff or pack that weight out. It was uh it was a game changer for me. Doug, we're gonna have to change your logo from knock on to keep hammering. Oh no! <laughs> All right. Uh, well, I'm joking, but uh, well, uh, I'm like, go ahead. Sorry. I I will say, um, one thing I I really can appreciate is the fact that that Cameron has brought a lot of attention to to fitness to the bow hunting community. I really appreciate that because you know for the longest time no one was really doing it and it was funny you could whenever you would go and you could always tell who the archers were if there was ever multiple athletes i mean i remember going to the world games in germany and you know it's pretty much every sport that does not have an olympic bid and you kind of see the archers <laughs> in the room with like all the other Olympic athletes. It kind of stands out. So yeah. um, I'm really thankful that that Cameron really helped uh, promote fitness in the hunting world, and 
And I think a lot of people are super, super serious about it now that, you know, they're kind of on that bandwagon. So if, if, uh, and actually I get a lot of stories from people that, you know, say, you know, between Cameron and myself, they've totally changed their life. And I get a lot of before and after photos of people and, uh, Hey, that's awesome. If, if the, yeah. if the keep knock hammer and knocks is, uh, working for people, then yeah. I'm all about it because it's, uh, it's really rewarding to see it change people the way that it is or the way that it did for, for some other people. Uh, did, did I cut you off or something before? Cause you were about yeah, to, you're good. Okay. Let's see here. I've got, I'm going to jump into another question. I'd like to hear more about your four fletch setup. Says he's playing around with a bunch of different arrow and vein. This is from Casey Montgomery. Arrow and vein combos. Interested in the four fletch. Uh, Twenty grains of insert weight. So um, I talked in the last podcast about this this configuration, and really it all boiled down to um, me trying several different things. And because I'm shooting slower in speed right now it's making me kind of rethink how I'm doing things, to be honest with you. Um, with, with a slower arrow, you know, the longer that arrow is in the air, the more it kind of has time for wind to get jiggy with it. So, um, I was really trying to find a setup that was one helping me control my arrow and two minimizing my, my wind drift. So kind of for, just for experimenting, I actually put a four fletch with the Max Hunter vein, the bigger, the more high profile two inch vein. And um, I shot some floor, four fletch with that versus my three inch veins. Um, and then even a, even a three fletch of the Max Hunters. And for me, what I found was, you know, with like with my Carbon Spider ZT or my Nitrum, you know, with with the way the ZT roller guard flexes in towards the bow, I just found that if I have too high of a profile of a vein, um, sometimes I run the risk of making just a very, very slight contact on the, the cable, especially if I have any variance in my front hand pressure, um, which in all fairness, I've kind of struggled with since my shoulder surgery. It feels, it just seems like I'm not able to kind of get my front arm in the position that I need to really have my, uh, kind of my grip in the same repeatable type position as what I've had before. Um, so I ended up deciding to try a lower profile vein just for the fact of getting more clearance. And the, the 260 elite vein is, a little bit lower than the the max hunter and then obviously um you know i thought well i'm just going to try a four fletch of the max pro which is you know even lower profile yet and what i found was the three inch and the four fletch of the pro max veins they hit about in the same spot they had about the same amount of drag um, which kind of instantly tells me that they're going to steer about the same. Um, but, you know, there wasn't a big difference in speed loss at the longer distances. 
um, which with the higher profile two inch vein I did have I had too much uh, too much speed loss at the longer distances those arrows started to hit considerably lower than a three fletch um, so I just kind of wanted to avoid that and then I shot both of them with a crosswind I kind of stand I stand completely out of the wind and then I shoot groups while the wind is blowing across and you can see pretty quick which one gives you the best benefit and for me shooting uh, a rage hypodermic this combination worked really really good there's several questions from people either on Instagram or the Facebook page that are asking about FOC so I'm going to kind of dive into because it relates specifically to this and this is pretty interesting I actually need to um, I want to talk with Jim Park about this subject because he'll actually be able to do some some really good testing for me and Jim if you're listening which I know you listen to a lot of these here's a question for you so in the past, I've always really liked a higher FOC. You know, I've always shot, um, like last year, I was shooting a little bit higher in weight, and I've always shot either 50 or 75 grains of brass inserts in the front of my arrows. One arrow that I've always really liked was the hex with 50 grains of brass in it because the FOC was really high. And what I found was that with a fixed blade head in the past, my FOC... Uh, a higher FOC gave me really good grouping. However, now this year I'm starting to have to completely relearn arrows and spine sizes because I'm shooting um, lower poundage, right? And so with that, I've actually had to try to experiment around with some different broadheads than what I've experimented with in the past just because I still wanted to be able to get good penetration. So what I've found was I had some special inserts made for my Easton ACCs because that was one of the arrows I really wanted to go with. And then I also had some made for um, an all-carbon beam and shaft. And what I found was uh, the higher FOC with this particular setup did not shoot as good as a lower FOC. So my question then was, maybe when the FOC gets too high, that the front of the arrow actually takes away the ability of the rear of that arrow to steer. So then it, you know, the higher your FOC, the more power it takes away from you know, and power is probably not the right word, but the more it, the front of center takes away from what that back of the shaft is doing. So obviously if you have a bigger fletch on there to try to help really get your arrow spinning and take control, the higher your FOC, the more you kind of lose control from the rear portion of the shaft. So with my setup now, I actually have a very light insert in the front of my um, ACC and I have a hundred grain broadhead so my FOC is probably four percent less on this arrow that I'm shooting right now than what I've shot in the past but 
it seems like the lower my FOC on this particular arrow, the better it will allow me to shoot a fixed blade head. And I'm crediting that, I think, because it's allowing the veins to be the ones controlling and not the front of the shaft. So that's my theory. I don't know if it makes sense and I don't know if it's correct, but that's kind of my theory, which if that's true, then now I begin to raise my eyebrow and think, well, okay, wait a minute. What do we really want then as bow hunters? Um, if you're looking for the boost in momentum and the boost in kinetic energy obviously loading front weight to your arrows are definitely going to help however at this point i'm not i can't say with 100 percent certainty that a really high foc is always in the favor of a bow hunter um, when it comes to actually how the arrow steers the broadhead so that's a test that is on my bucket list here is one broadhead five different focs all with the same fletchings how does it control so it's going to take some time but that's that's on my bucket list now give you give all you guys something to chew on for a little bit what uh what do you think about that chris yeah, I mean, that's, that'd be actually it'd be a great topic. And, and one thing that, you know, I get a lot of questions about FOC, too, and, 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 and it's hard. I mean, there's a lot of physics going on when that arrow is released and it's going down range. And that's, you know, obviously you can't track it in the wind and you can't watch it at every foot that it's moving. So there's a lot going on when that arrow starts spinning and that front starts stabilizing. And, and, and it's hard for us to really measure what's happening. But I agree. I, I think that, that FOC has a lot of merits when it comes to bow hunting. It seems to me in my setups that I, I found that, you know, everyone says, what's the magic number? And I don't, I don't think there is one. I don't, you would probably say there's not one either. It depends on the bow and the arrow and what, you know, the whole package. But I think my setup this year is about 15%. And, and while that's not really, really high, I'm shooting a lighter shaft this year. Um, and, and a little more weight up front, and, and, and my groups are the best I think they've ever been, and that's not a crazy high FOC. It just that's what my my uh, carbon spotter like this year, so that's what I went with, and I just kind of let you know the bow like you. I, I can't shoot near the groups you can, but you can tell when a bow is getting along well with a certain arrow and a certain point setup that you have. You can tell that it's that it's doing right, and, and that's where mine ended up this year was right at about fifteen percent. So um, yeah. that, that'd be a good test. Of, I mean, that, that theory makes sense. It, if that arrow is, you know, working overtime in the back, trying to stabilize the front, it, it may not be nearly as efficient. Yep. Yep. And I want to get that confirmed with Jim's one of the few people when it comes to physics that I trust. Um, I trust, well, I trust Winky too, but I trust Jim more. So Mr. Park, dear friend, Send me an email on that one if I've got you thinking. Normally, if I give him some type of an equation that gets him thinking a little bit, then he wants to get out and figure out if I'm right or not. So I think uh, I think that's a pretty good one to, to play around with. So the key, I guess, and that's why with so much of 
hunt, shooting a hunting arrow, you really have to get out there and and try it out. I know that I've got uh, I've got a buddy of mine that I'm working with a little bit here in our local area, and you know he recently changed bows, and you know we kind of really worked on arrows and matching and all that stuff, and you know he kept. I would give him ideas of what I think he should try. And several times it, he was like, wow, I can't believe how good that worked. Um, you know, sometimes, sometimes I kind of know the right path to go down, but yet then there's other times where it doesn't work as perfectly as that. But for this year, anyway, it seems like, um, I'm really liking this four fletch and actually, um, any day now we should have, the max pro knock on veins available uh at the knockonarchery.com website um i got some custom made with the knock on logos on them and got them ordered i actually got the bill yesterday but i haven't got the veins <laughs> so they they probably will be here maybe even today or tomorrow um and then also I think I might as well announce this right now. And, you know, if you end up listening to this podcast a year from now, it's not going to qualify. But anyway, from when we do this podcast here uh, later today, for sure by tomorrow, we're actually going to be running a cool promotion on the knockonarchery.com website. We're going to give away uh, a free beanie with every hoodie. Uh, with every hoodie order, uh, kind of as a, I think yesterday I'm like, man, it's finally hoodie weather. I put my hoodie on and kind of threw a beanie on and went out to practice. And Sharon's like, why don't you give a beanie away if someone buys a, buys a hoodie? So I just said, well, yeah, let's do it. And, uh, so that's going to be a little promotion that we're going to do here for all you archers out there that are starting to have a little bit of nip in the air. So, Hopefully you take advantage of that too. Um, let's see here. Let's get into another one. Um, well, that was that was an FOC question. So a a Jarrett four fifty four. I can I think I kind of covered you there. Um, okay, so let's see. Sean Groves is asking. I'd love to get your thoughts on shot sequence, especially as it relates to out hunting and you've got an animal coming in. Uh, ways and tips to keep yourself focused on your animal you know make sure you watch season five um, of the show Sean that I put on that's out there for free right now because in one of the episodes I know I did a dead center on that and it's um I always it's something that I call you know checkmate Um, I've done this for years and years and years but you know when whenever animals whenever i'm hunting and then i see an animal that i'm wanting to shoot you know for me i i've developed this mentality through all my years of target shooting to where you know i really feel super confident that i can make a shot and when it comes to bow hunting if an animal steps within the range of my pins in my mind the game's over Um, you know, it's just a matter of being able to get the shot angle. And then once that happens in my mind, it's like 
checkmate, you're dead. Um, you really need to have that type of confidence and to be able to to be able to sit there and just focus on doing the exact same things that you would do at home in order to make a good shot. And you know, Chris, Chris I know that you you focus quite a bit on shot sequence and you know trying to have a systematic routine. I guess um, I guess I'll leave this one up to you. I want you. I kind of want to hear how you tackle this for you know obviously you're doubling down on does i haven't heard of you you know missing too much junk so what's your thought process on this and then i'll kind of throw my two cents in worth after that yeah i guess one thing that i that i kind of focus on when i when i'm going to shoot an animal is to you know is to really try to relax as much as i can and and although i can still feel my heart racing which that's that's what we all love and that's good that really doesn't always have a big impact on your actual, you know, the quality of your shot. So one thing that I try to do is just to slow down and, and to make sure that, that I'm not really letting that arrow go too quickly. And, and, and I've been guilty of that in the past, and I think most bow hunters probably have. And it seems like any time, you know, I know for me still, when I shoot an animal and I go back and I rewind it in my mind, I'm like, man, that happened really fast. That, that happened really fast that I – that I really do what I wanted to do when I made that shot. And 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 one thing that I probably started doing years ago was when I drew back on an animal and I got, you know, and I started getting my, my release, you know, where I wanted it to be, is just to try, to try to take that extra second or two and make sure that, you know, you were just ready to let it go. And it seems to me that a lot of times I'll watch guys shoot and they just, you know, it's one thing that's easy to do in my mind is when that pin hits fur, it, I mean, it's like you wanting to let it go. And, <laughs> and that's something that you don't. <laughs> that's my God, that's like people to... at target ranges. When it hits paper, they want to let it go. Yeah, we got to move past that mentality. Yeah, I mean, it's just that's easy to do, especially when you're in the, the heat of the moment. And when it, when it lines up, it seems like you just want to let it rip and, and you just have to slow it all down. So that's that's one thing that I've tried to, to do, and it, that's helped me, is, you know. It's like, you know, when we – you probably remember, John, when we shot fish that night, the the guy kept telling me that, you know, that I was I was waiting too long, and, I, and I'm going to have a habit of that along a lot of times, is that I might – you know, I'm, I'm waiting too long sometimes to shoot. I, I wasn't really – I probably let some fish go that night that I could have released some arrows on, but – that's that's one thing that I try to do is just just slow it all down and and make sure that I'm I'm doing the same thing every time and not really you know rush the shot. Yep, yep, and that's a good that's a super good practice for sure. Um, I know, I know. There's times you know if I'm going to be honest, there there are times in a hunting scenario where the shot needs to happen rapidly, and there's times where you're going to be able to to you know aim and pull i can tell you that you know sharon and harry both shoot uh carter evolutions um they've been i would i would you know from from an average bow hunter's perspective um i would say that they've been extremely successful as bow hunters um and they probably they probably hunt about the same as what the average everyday hunter does 
uh, you know, when you have to factor in having a lot of other responsibilities, they like doing it. They want to go, but a lot of times they just can't. And, you know, little duds in three sports, he's, you know, super dedicated to, to books and Sharon's like even more dedicated to being mom. So the amount of hunting time since he's been, especially in high school has really gone down for those guys, but they've still both been successful um, on their hunts with a Carter Evolution, which is 100% purely a back tension release. So, I mean, they have to, and they've shot everything from alligators, hogs, African animals, whitetails, bears, turkeys. I mean, they've shot them all. So, you know, even if the animal is slightly, you know, kind of like hogs, they hardly ever stop moving, you know, but he just does his best to keep his pin in that place where he needs it to go and just continue to pull through the shot and pull through the shot, whether it takes two or three seconds or whether it takes 10 seconds. And I'm the same way. Now, you know, there's times if a deer's, you know, passing through a shooting lane and it's like, that's it. I mean, I'm normally, I normally will position myself, draw back and be almost aiming instead of watching the deer the whole way along, I'm actually focused on where my shooting opportunity is and I'm completely ready in that spot and ready to go. One thing that I continually see people make the mistake of, and again, I hunted with several people over the last month, is people that like wait until the shot opportunity to draw their bow this really minimizes your your success i mean drastically um you have to as a bow hunter you have to be able to position yourself get your your feet positioned get your torso positioned get everything positioned to where you are able to have your shot and then you know as soon as the animal is approaching that you need to be able to to be pulled back and completely ready by the time that animal gets to that position you know people that wait until the animal's in their shooting lane to then pull back and be like eh, you know to stop them well now you're like rushing you're you have completely minimized your ability to focus on your anchor or your looking through your peep or centering your scope or checking your level or making sure you use the right pin you know those are all things for me that kind of go through my checklist you know first i'm going to make sure i get my torso positioned correctly to where i'm not shooting across my body where i'll end up having to hit my sleeve or something you know then i'm gonna you know grab my bow make sure i'm not you know death grip in the handle draw back anchor look through my peep center my scope get my bubble level and then i make sure i'm looking at the right pin and then i'm getting the pin into that area and usually by the time all that's happened the animal is just then getting into my shooting opportunity you know if 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 i had to only have my shot once the animal's in that opportunity and then have to stop them there's a very solid chance that most of that stuff I just talked about is going to go out the window and then it's just going to be a matter of here's my pin, there's hair, shoot, you know, because obviously you've, the animal's not going to stay in that position very long. So, you know, I really try to focus on my shot process no different than if I was on a shooting line and I really try to always be prepared to be in 
a shooting, uh, you know, a perfect shooting position before that animal has gotten into that into that spot. You know, I don't wait until the animal is right there in that spot. You know, and you can you can even see that. Um, you know, one of the one of the over the shoulder hunts that everyone seems to remember the most was you know that mega muley, the big double dropper that I shot, and you know that animal was that animal was still in the timber and stepping out when I drew back. I wanted you know by the time that animal came out into the wide open, I wanted to be at full draw. I didn't want to be stuck out there in the wide open or within sight of that animal drawing my bow back. You know I knew that I knew where he was stepping out I figured that was going to be my best shot opportunity it was right at 50 yards so I wanted to be totally ready when he got to that position it just so happened that when he stood stood in that position then he turned and came right to me which if I would have waited till he was out you know that deer came out and then just turned right at me from that second on there's no way I would have ever been able to even draw that would have never happened so you know you need to you need to focus on being able to draw back slightly before you need to shoot so that you can go through these steps that we just talked about. And yes, what what Chris is saying about slowing down, that's a very, very good thing to do in your mind is, you know, slow down, try to aim a little bit longer and make, make sure that you're that you're using the right pin. Let's see here. I got a foam killers asking a question here chris uh, i'm gonna go from back tension release to a carter just because can you give any tips on how to use this release and steps needed to to become as confident with the thumb trigger as the back tension so um a lot of people here's my question if you shoot a back tension release really good and you still don't feel 100% confident as it is with the thumb release of making that same shot, then I would say you might not be ready to go to it yet. Um, you know, I know for me, when I learned to shoot back tension, I really, the whole time, I wanted to be able to shoot a thumb trigger. But the reality was, every time I picked up a thumb trigger, I kind of had a little bit of uh, anxiety and eventually I would kind of get on the trigger so I would have to put that away and go back to the back tension release um, the main thing is if you have been shooting a back tension release you want to have that exact same feeling shot feeling with your thumb release each and every time you want to be able to grab that release draw back get anchored get into your peep move your thumb to that trigger and then from there once your thumb is on that trigger you don't want to have to continually tighten your hand or move your thumb you want to be able to keep your thumb in that same position but then just focus on pulling that elbow towards something behind you until that release goes off with that same surprise as what happened with your back tension release you know, a lot of people get the thumb release, and within a day or two, you can see that they're not coming through their shot enough. Um, what a lot of people make the mistake of is once they go to the thumb release, they just, they have a surprise shot, 
but it's not from being dynamic. It's from actually just slowly making a fist on the release until it fires or slowly bending your thumb and bending your thumb until it fires. You know, eventually that is going to catch up with you again. You want to be able to just set your thumb on that trigger and then pull through. Um, the same as what you're doing with your hinge release or your tension activated release, depending on what you've got. So um, I've got a few articles out on master. I think there's an article that just came out in the Petersons recently, wasn't there, on mastering the release aid? Um, I also have one about release aids that I wrote for Bow International. I'll see if I can get those put up on on the the either the DudleyArchery.info or the the Knock on TV page. Um, I'll see if I can get those put out there so that you can see some of the important tips on hand position and thumb position as well. Um, how you doing for time, Chris? We're sitting at about an hour and 15 I'm, here. Yep, I'm low on time. <laughs> All right. Well, what I'll do is I'm going to end up breaking this uh, breaking this podcast into several different... Well, this one will be a complete one, but I'll go ahead and continue on with a solo mission for a lot of these other questions that I've got. But uh, is there anything you want to wrap up with? You said you wanted yeah, some jokes. Yeah, jokes. Yeah, you're always full of those. But we we didn't get any. <laughs> I know. It, it may be a little early. It yeah. May, it may be early. I'll wait till um, you're gone. Yeah, one question. There you go. Make fun of me. That would be good. I'll, that, that'll make me tune into the next podcast. <laughs> um, one, th- <laughs> one question that I get asked a lot, and I noticed someone asked it on the Facebook page, and you've talked about it a hundred times, was grip pressure um, and how that affects you know, your flight and it can obviously affect a fixed blade head. And you kind of mentioned that earlier, but you know, I get asked a lot, do different bows like different grip pressures? And, and, and and I don't know if I really know the answer to that because I've been shooting hoods for so long. I don't get to spend a lot of time behind other bows, you know, whether it be dual cams or binary cams or whatever you want to call them. But, I don't know if I really know the answer to that. If I say, yeah, certain bows like this type of pressure on the right side, or I know what, I think I know what Hoyt's like and, and, and what I have, you know, come to think that is my proper grip. But I get asked that question a lot. Is there a certain type of grip for every boat? And, you know, obviously a lot of the guys that listen in, no one, everyone doesn't shoot the same type. So maybe I think that'd be a good topic for, you know, Someone did ask that on the Facebook page to touch on. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, a lot of bows, they they have slight different characteristics, and some bows like certain types of pressures more so than others. You know, it seems like some of the bows that have a lot more, like, torsional twist at full draw, some of them want a slightly different pressure in order to give you the best type of aero flight you know and what you'll find is you know well an example of that is my buddy marty he finds that if he just grabs his bow the way that he wants to grab it when he shoots he has a hard time getting perfect aero flight through paper and i can grab his bow and set it up and then have perfect aero flight but then when he grabs it it's a completely different tear so that's an immediate 
you know, that just shows you what grip pressure can do. So what he has, what yep. he has to do is he actually has to, you know, he's got really big hands. So when he grabs a bow, he actually has to kind of touch the tip of his fingers to the front of his grip. And for whatever reason for him, if he touches all of his fingers kind of around to the front of his grip, it's almost like it, it causes his wrist to turn. It turns to a natural position is what I think because his I can get his bow shooting perfect. But then when he grips it how he normally just wants to, he's got a pretty mean tear. But if he grabs a bow and puts his fingers kind of towards the, you know, and touches them lightly on the front of the riser, then he gets that perfect bullet hole. So, you know, I know that some bows, when you draw them back, they flex, the riser flexes a lot more than others. Um, and those different types of flexes are going to like a slightly different, you know, different type of grip pressure, whether it's on the inside or the outside. Shooting through paper is a pretty good way to kind of see what your grip, you know, you, that's a good way to, to check what your changes in your grips do. You know, you can grab it and maybe grip it a little bit high or put a little heel pressure on it or maybe grip it a little bit further outside on your thumb. You know, if you do those tests right through paper, you'll see really fast what your bow likes. And then, you know, from there, that kind of needs to get put into your mental checklist of what you need to focus on during your shot so that you make sure, you know, so that you make sure that you're you're doing it the correct way. And I know that, like, on my Hoyts, um, this year I shot a Nitrum and a and my Carbon Spider ZT. And on my Nitrum, I ended up putting some of those side plates on my Nitrum, and I really liked it that way. Whereas um, my Spy Carbon Spider ZT did not get along as good with the side plates. You know, and what happens is when you put those side plates on, you're gripping the bow further inside than if you have a standard yep. grip on. Um, now, with my Carbon Spider ZT, and I always try all three grips. I'll try the wood grip. I have some of the flat back plastic, you know, the kind of the the skull grip, um, the Hoyt skull mm -hmm. grip. Um, and then I have the side plates. And I'll always try all three of those to see what's giving me the best feel. Um, the flat back plastic grip is what gave me the best results on my Carbon Spider ZT. So, you know, once again, it's these are those things where it's hard to say this bow likes this, this bow likes this. I mean, unfortunately, um, all the companies out there don't send me their bows to, to try. And, you know, it gets hard enough to just put in enough time to figure my own out, let alone, you know, work on a whole bunch of them. But these are the types of things. These are the types of things that people that shoot year year round have the ability to really learn about their equipment and that's what really makes a difference between the art the year-round archer and the weekend bow hunter you know if you want to really learn these small points at what is going to make you be a way better archer then you have to be able to be willing to put that time in and and try some of these different things like we talked about yep all right, man. Well, I'm going to well, sign thanks. us off. Thanks a lot for uh, for coming on. And um, for any of you who want to get uh, active in a, in a pretty cool forum down there, uh, check out 
check out Chris's forum and and uh, and then if you're looking for an awesome deal on a Ford Dodge Jeep, what else do you guys sell down there? Ram. Ram. I, yeah. Yeah. Any of that. A little bit of everything. Well, I can tell you that Chris is, you guys have an amazing operation down there. Um, I actually bought my Jeep from you um, down at Aikens Sales in Winder, Georgia. So check that out. You do have unbelievable prices. You can find them on the website too, but um, probably don't. Hey, I enjoyed it. I really I really appreciate you having me on. I, I always like to talk about archery. I do it, it seems like, every day, whether it's in February or it's in open, uh, before opening weekend. So I love it. So thanks for having me on. All right. Well, I'll have you come here hunting in January, and we'll see how you love it then. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, thanks, everybody, for tuning in to another Knock On podcast, and uh, I can tell you that for all you out there who have put some questions on the board for me today, uh, I'm just going to go ahead and try to knock all these out, and then have uh, I'll put a podcast here over the over the next few weeks. So thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Thanks, Chris. I appreciate it a lot. Be sure to visit knockonarchery.com to see our entire line of trendy knock-on lifestyle clothing knockonarchery.com